that the Lord has this morning. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the, whole, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Father, in this season, uh, when we celebrate your birth, um, it's encouraging to know that the story didn't end with your birth. Um, and that the story isn't finished yet. Lord, that we can look forward to your return when you will reign and when everything will be made right, when um, evil will be judged and righteousness will dwell in the land forever. Um, and Lord, I, I just think about all that chaos going on in our world today and do look forward to that time when you will be reigning and um, everything will be perfect, just the way you created it. We thank you for this morning. We pray for um, our time that you would be blessed, that you would be honored and glorified, and that we would be moved by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. Thank you, Pam. So the peace Jesus brings is what illuminates Advent. The peace that this child born in a manger will bring through his life, death, and resurrection is actually what illuminates, what provides light for all men and women and illuminates his arrival, the advent. The war had only been raging for about five months, but winter was upon them and things were getting dark. There had already been lulls in the fighting as armies ran out of men and munitions and commanders drew up new strategies to uh, finalize and make the war a success in Europe. And earlier that month, Pope Benedict XV begged every side for a truce, asking, quote, that the guns fall silent at least upon the night that the angels sang. And both sides rejected his plea. Still, though, as one account tells it, in the weeks leading up to the 25th of December, French, German, and British soldiers crossed trenches to exchange seasonal greetings and to talk with one another. And in some areas, men from both sides ventured into no man's land on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to mingle and exchange food and souvenirs. There were joint burial ceremonies and prisoner swaps while several meetings ended in singing Christmas carols. Men played games of soccer with one another, creating one of the most memorable images of the truce of Christmas 1914. And this is a great story and we love to tell it and it kind of hints at the sparks of what is best in humanity shining in the midst of what is worth. And this is what the season of Advent can actually do for us here 
on the ground, right? Bring sparks of light into the midst of the darkness, brushing away the debris of tumultuous lives to see rays of light occasionally break through the dark as a foretaste of this light that is dawning at Christmas. The truce of 1914, though, didn't last. And in successive years, it would be a non-existent thing as no soldier, no leader, and no king could institute peace until the war was over. We think of that story, though, and often that's what we bring to mind when we think of peace. We think of things that are temporary or even nostalgic in some way, a setting down of arms for a season or for a moment. But what we need, what creation actually groans for, is more than just an end of hostilities. What we need is a remaking of the world where peace, where lasting, perfect, harmonious peace is central to our experience. Where reconciliation between all created things and their creator is a reality that is breathed, that is seen, that is lived in. And that too is what Advent is about, this announcement of such a peace that has come. While we've been using the Psalms to paint our need for a righteous king, one to lead us, to uh, bring us into his kingdom. And we've recognized that we see Jesus in these Psalms, that that's who's declared and described. And it's to our final Psalm in this series that we turn this morning to see what is actually at the beating heart of his reign as king. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. It's a psalm of David, a royal psalm revealing a king who is also a priest. And the song is structured in such a way that it highlights the center, the, the beating heart that I will describe as the center of his reign. And it begins with this inauguration of the kingdom, and then it ends with the fulfillment of the kingdom that has been expanded and undisputed in its reign. So from the entry of one placed into authority to the exercise of his full authority. Impulsing at the center of the psalm is verse 4. The psalmist writes, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this king is unique and different than every king that has come before or ever will be because he is also a priest. An eternal priest. So just two points this morning that we're going to walk through rather quickly, but we start with this idea that Jesus is our priest of peace. I've given away the plot already, but maybe you knew that was coming. You've been around Reservoir Church to realize that Jesus is kind of the point of everything we do here. But um, before we hang this mantle of priest on peace, we want to know what does it mean to be this priest? Who is Melchizedek, right? That is described as his order of priesthood. We go back to Genesis 14 and Abraham, who was actually at the moment still Abram, who God had covenant with to bless the whole of humanity, all of the world through his seed, right? He battles with unrighteous kings and then after winning this battle, this happens. We see it in Genesis 14, 18, 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Sound familiar? 
He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, uh, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the priestly king that brings bread and wine, and he's given an offering that signifies for us in the story his spiritual significance, that Abram recognized the importance of Melchizedek and king of righteousness, of Salem, which is like the precursor to Jerusalem. It just means shalom or peace, this place of harmonious peace. And he's not a Levitical priest. They haven't even been established yet, right? But he's something more. And there's significance to this uh, priesthood. And it's why I think David claims his order for the new king that is to come. That he is both kingly and priestly at the same time. And it's not merely a leader of armies and administration, but one who mediates between God and his people that we need to experience the promise of the Messiah. So what sets this Lord in Psalm 110 apart from all the other kings, even Solomon, even David himself, is that he is a priest. And there haven't been any so far in the line before Jesus arrives, and the people of God, Israel, knew this. And when they sang this song, they realized that he was yet to come. So they have this future-oriented hope in a king that is like none that they had experienced in Israel before, one who even David calls his Lord. So one scholar, Hakam, notes that once Judah went into exile and the house of David no longer ruled them, the future element of Psalms such as this came to greater prominence. But that future element is nothing foreign to the original meaning of the psalm. And by the time of Jesus, the future hope predominates in how the psalms are read and sung. This just represents the people of God in their own long advent, their own desire and waiting for his arrival. And when the people of God would sing this song in faith, they would celebrate God's promises to David and still yearn for the day in which the Gentiles would receive light, that the coming would be accomplished in the arrival of the Messiah, and they would seek to be faithful to their calling until that great day, longing to see the one in the order of Melchizedek who would come. Psalm 110, for a long time, has enjoyed this history as a messianic psalm. And it's, we believe that just for three primary reasons, right? First, that David has a vision of a figure whom he refers to as my Lord. And this a figure then accomplishes an ultimate victory over God's enemies that none of David's purely human offspring had ever approached. There's no way that the kingdom, even of Solomon, would have matched what was described in this psalm. So that's kind of the first thing that says, well, this has to be messianic. There has to be looking forward to the promised perfect one who would come and be king over all of God's people. But then there's also this affinity between Psalm 110 and other messianic psalms that we see in Scripture. This is essentially the fulfillment of what began in Psalm 2, the announcement of this good king. And here we see him in full reign and 
authority. And so just because it matches other Psalms like Psalm 45, 72, 132, 144, it has the same tone as those other Messianic Psalms. But then for us as Christians, we know this is Messianic because that's how all of the writers of the New Testament treat this text. And it applies then the writing of the New Testament, Psalm 110, to Jesus as evidence of his messianic nature. He himself would claim this for himself. And Peter would preach it later at Pentecost, right? In Acts 2, we hear Peter's sermon, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." That all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter does it. The writer of Hebrews will do it. will say Psalm 10 is a declaration of Jesus, of who he is as the priest of peace that has come. Where the default, though, for us and for God's people is just to look for a king, this warrior that's unmatched. We actually miss Jesus if that's all we look for. If we look for a political ruler, we will miss him because this king doesn't even subdue his foes in the way that we expect him to. It's something of his priestly work that makes the Messiah amazing. So when we look at Psalm 110, there should be no question if this is Jesus. And if you ever meet somebody that's, well, Psalm 110 may not be about Jesus, tell them goodbye. Right? Do not tithe to their ministry. (laughs) Trust me. Invest in Bitcoin instead. But the question, though, is not if this is about Jesus, because it most definitely is, right? But the question is if we will receive the peace that this priest brings. So that's our next point, just the peace that he brings. And Pam even alluded to just the reality of life in this moment. Bill and I were taught that things are dark, that things are hard or tumultuous in this moment. Bill and I talking about, you know, what's the hope for homelessness or what's the hope for the Republican Party? And the answer is the return of Christ, Right? But in that, it's just I mentioned like we have two prominent wars happening, other battles and wars happening across the globe. There's hunger, there's insecurity, there's depression, anxiety. We just know things are not as they should be. And it's just the reality of the fall of our condition. And it's why Advent can feel so dark for us when we're honest about the brokenness of ourselves and everything around us because we are sinful people. One good Orthodox Presbyterian pastor says, it's difficult for us to fully understand this, but there was a time when there was no sin. 
where there was no death, where there was no suffering. It was a time of peace and joy and blessing in God's presence. However, the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sin and death entered the world, and with sin and death came misery. And if we read the book of Genesis, we see that it moves from the eating of the forbidden fruit, a seemingly harmless act of disobedience, to one brother killing another, and then to a man who brags about his lust for murder. And then everything's just downhill from there. But there is a promise in that garden that there will come an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent, put all of his enemies under his feet. From the garden and our first parents' disobedience, though, that reality is joined with our perpetual rejection of God and his way. You think it's bad enough just to eat some fruit that is forbidden? I can list, and you can list for yourself all of the ways in which you have disobeyed the God of the universe. And Paul says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, all stand guilty. And what happens when that break exists, when the chaos of sin enters into the reality of the human story, it's not just a trench that is dividing warring parties, but there is cosmic separation from God, from our creator. The whole of the prophet of Isaiah is phenomenal to look just at that reality. And Israel as a kind of microcosm of all of humanity, of how they were supposed to relate to God and show that to the rest of us. In Isaiah 59, their sin is full. It is big and The writer declares, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The reality of our sin and our refusal to walk in the way that God has called us. And then Isaiah tells us exactly how it feels when that's a reality later in verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. How many days start that way? How many nights end that way? That is the experience separated from God apart from what we are supposed to have. Just that reality, the night is always darkest just before sunrise. And this is the breach that he came to cross, the separation that Jesus came to close, the peace that he mediates for us as priests. The child who wise men would seek, who kings would reject, who would preach the arrival of the kingdom of God, who would be the one that Isaiah had cried out for, that generations hoped for, that David in Psalm 110 calls Lord, the one that would face the ultimate of darkness to bring the dawn of marvelous light. Why is Christmas so good? Because Jesus will give himself up, his perfect life for you, his sinless death to bring peace between you and God, to restore what is broken, to eliminate the separation. The babe announced by angels, promised by prophets, is given for us. 
Come, all you unfaithful, all the unworthy, and see what God has done. Christ is born for you. The writer of Hebrews will say it this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Paul would describe it in Romans, this same life of obedience that is in your place. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, and by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is the peace. This is the restoration, this is what the Messiah brings. This is how the king defeats all of his enemies. This is how he reigns forever as the priest of peace. This salvation, peace that only Jesus can provide. As the one to whom Yahweh swears in oath. Later in Hebrews, the author will say, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This is why it's beneficial to us. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So the hope for the future then is anchored in the first advent of Jesus. This king born in a manger would give of his perfect life that we could experience peace. And from his finished work, to free us from slavery to sin and all of its repercussions, to give us righteousness before the holy God, access to him once again, just like the days in the garden, to give us new life filled with hope, with resiliency, with courage to face the dark, to call the experience of our life what it is and be anchored in the arrival of this king. So will you receive this peace? Will you turn from the dark and receive the salvation that only this king provides? Will you be reminded of it as the light that breaks over the horizon of our days? This is the light of Christmas, the peace of salvation, of restoration that is promised from ancient of days, and it's the light we now bring to others until he returns to judge the nation. The peace of Jesus brings 
that he brings is what actually illuminates Advent. This is the light of the world. So the war is over. Jesus has died in your place and he has risen for your new life and he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. You are not alone. Receive his peace. Let it be the blessing that carries you through in that which you share with everyone you meet. The peace for which the angels sing. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we see you in the word as declared as the king who comes to rule, sits at the right hand of the father, that has at the center of your reign a priesthood of peace. Lord, it's that peace that we declare week in and week out, that we ask to keep at the center of our lives as we live for your glory and the good of others. It is in the midst of Advent where things can seem so dark. We see on the horizon the light of your reign. As we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. We find our satisfaction, we find our hope, we find courage in your finished work for us. That all is being made right. That everything sad is becoming untrue. Lord, by your spirit, anchor us in that truth. That we can celebrate Christmas. In Jesus' name.